and welcome to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Uh, welcome tonight on behalf of myself, Tim Fredericks, and my co-host, Fran Gavin. We're very happy that everyone is here tonight, and we're continuing with our series of shows that are curated by our doctoral students. This evening in the studio, I am very pleased to welcome uh, doctoral student Kate Walsh and doctoral student Melissa Lewis, who will be taking over the show. So, Kate, I am going to turn it over to you to introduce our special guests and get on with the show. Thank you, Tim. Today, Melissa and I will be speaking with three different leaders in public education regarding how those leaders have implemented change within their buildings and districts and what they've learned from implementing those changes. We'll also talk about what leadership looks like today and how we can ensure we are preparing our students for jobs that do not yet exist. We are very fortunate to have with us today, Dr. Kurt Sereznak, Dr. Jennifer McCones, and Mr. John Fritzke. And we are going to start off with Mr. Fritzke this morning. We welcome you and thank you for joining us. Please introduce yourself to our listeners and why you became an educator and how you arrived at your current position in a New Jersey public school. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. Uh, my name is John Fritzke. My current role is as the superintendent in the Byron Township School District. And uh, my journey to education was one where I wasn't sure what, what I wanted to do. I, I wasn't one of those people who loved school and wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I was kind of the opposite, where I, I was in school. And if I did well, I, I found that I got more work to do. So I, I kind of stopped trying to accelerate and to, to do the best I could do. So I kind of just, just skated by through um, you know, my, my elementary school and high school. And it wasn't until I got to college and I had some a summer job where I was helping some some students. I was kind of like a, a male nanny. It was awesome, a manny. And um, I got to take the kids on, on trips and do things. But there was always that time where, you know, I was off from school and it was June. I would pick up the kids from the bus stop, take them home, help them with their homework. And one of the students had a learning disability. He was uh, dyslexic. And, you know, I was trying to help him, trying to fill in the gaps with homework and things like that. And it, it just connected where it was something that I wanted to help with. And I feel like I didn't have enough skills there. Uh, fast forward that, I I got a job as a professional in a preschool classroom with disabilities while I was in college. And that was, that was the hook for me, where I could finally connect what I was learning in school to a real application and see a real impact in the students that I was working with. So from that moment, that's what made me get into education, want to be a teacher, and uh, eventually an assistant principal, principal, and now superintendent. I think that's, did, did I hit it all, Kate? You tell me. Yes, you did. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the things that you did while you uh, were a building principal uh, in Byram Intermediate School was you led the Byram Intermediate School through the process of becoming a national schools to watch back in 2018. So what changes did you need to implement within the school to achieve this designation? You know, how did you lead uh, the staff through this? If you could talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So becoming a, a principal is overwhelming because you are the, the leader of the school and schools have a million different needs. And everyone on this call knows that if, if you try to lead a million different initiatives, you are going to fall very, very quickly because you can't designate a million different initiatives to your staff. So I, I tried to find something that we could all rally around and I came across the National Forum to Accelerate Middle Schools. And they have a rubric that goes with it, which is nice, so it's, it's very formatted. And they have four main categories on the National Forum, which are academic excellence, developmental responsiveness, social equity, and organizational structures and processes. So those main four categories are the framework for the Schools to Watch program. 
So I, I, I took that rubric with those four main categories and I, I gave it to our staff. And I, I just asked them to evaluate our school. And we, we did that year one. So year one was just evaluating our programs. What are we doing right now? And how successful are we at, at those items? And uh, our scores came back. And I asked the teachers to provide specific examples of all those things that, that we're currently doing. And it, the results were twofold. One was for a lot of the areas, I can't believe how many things we're actually doing for these kids. That you know, we're doing some pretty great work here to help our students. And that, that was really profound because it, it allowed the teachers to kind of sit up straight and be, be proud of the work that they're doing. The other things where we might have been a little bit more efficient on, it also gave back to those ideas that these are important. And as a leader, one of the things that I know is difficult is we want to weigh equally the things that happen in our school. So one of the four pillars here is academic excellence, but it's only one of the four. And normally schools are evaluated on how they do on state testing one week in May. So I, I wanted our evaluation system to be more than just about state testing. So that's how we came across this. And that's what we did in year one is we, we evaluated it. Year two, we came across and we tried to see what initiatives do we need to develop in order to raise our scores? What can we do differently? And so when, when we looked at the rubric, uh, a lot of the things, and, and everybody on, on this call or, or listening knows that in schools, I, I really believe that we need to give students more of a voice for what's happening in the classroom, for their own learning. And that's in the rubric. It talks about giving students the opportunity for voice, for reflection experiences. And that's something that we were we rated ourselves a little bit lower on. Um, after the, the first year, over the summer, with my admin team, with Mr. McCorkle, um, Mike Linsky was someone who was in who was getting his admin certification. We developed a student-led conferences framework. With the help of other school districts, we reached out to them, picked their brains on it. And that next year, for year two, we implemented student-led conferences. And it, would, it was difficult because it was such a change in terms of how we ran things. But I, I believe that, that that was worth it. So... That was our big push in year two. And then in year three, we evaluated ourselves and our, our scores were pretty significant. So I said, what, what the heck, let's, let's submit it. Let's submit an application. And we did to the national forum, which was great. And once we s submit an application, if yours is of high enough quality, they come out and they visit your school. So we, we were able to have them come out and visit our school in year three. And that was a, a little bit scary. Kate, I'm sure you can imagine that, you know, having different people come into your school and Go through all your classrooms it, it's a little bit of a nerve-wracking nerve experience right absolutely so we had a, a team of people from the national forum come in uh it was about eight to ten principals directors of curriculum uh educators from other schools to watch came in and they went into all the classrooms and it was to see if our application held up to what's actually happening in the schools so it's different from you know if you submit for a blue ribbon they look at your scores they say yes or no this was somebody coming in or about eight to 10 people coming in and, and coming into the classroom and, and talking to everybody. Not only did they do that, they pulled out teachers away from the students on their common planning or prep times and interviewed the teachers to ask them about the school. What's it like here? They also did that with students. They pulled them to the side and interviewed the students for what's it, what's it like here? What's the homework like? What's the stress level like? Uh, how do you feel about your principal? How do you feel about your teachers? So it was a very comprehensive interview process and inspection for, for lack of a better word, of our school to make sure that what was actually happening held up to the rubric that we submitted. So we did that. I believe that they came out to nine different schools that year. And we were lucky enough that, that our school was, was the one to be selected that year as 
the, the only school to receive the designation as a school to watch from the state of New Jersey. We were the ninth school designated in the state to achieve this distinction. And so, so that was great. And every every three years, we're supposed to have, have another inspection. Last year we had COVID, so we didn't, we didn't get that, but we are looking forward to having the team back in our school in 2022. That's amazing, uh, John. Congratulations on that achievement. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about any pushback maybe you received in that initial year one, year two? And how did you rally your staff, the students, and uh, really changing the mindset of the community when it comes to student-led conferences to move that forward? Sure. You're right. A, that is an enormous shift. So for, for our teachers, we went back to, to the rubric that this is, a, this is a best practice for our kids. And some of the things that we were noticing for our conferences, especially at the middle school, uh, those of you who work in middle school know that the parents are coming from elementary and for conferences, especially they're used to having a conference with their, their teacher. And the expectation from a parent's perspective is, well, now I should have about five conferences because my, my child has five different teachers or six different teachers. And the reality of that would mean that our teachers need to have about 125 conferences, which is not possible. So at that point in our middle school, the teachers were scheduling conferences with those parents that they needed to see. That was the only way that, that they could they could schedule it. So from my perspective, it felt like we were hanging a sign on the door for our parents to say, you know what, we don't really need to see you here. We are only going to meet with the kids who are struggling. We don't really need to talk to anybody else. So that was one of the hooks for me because it, it was a real felt need that we're only seeing about a quarter of our parents and we need to see all of our parents. So student-led conferences allows us to, to have, for every student to have a conference. So that was number one. Number two, at, at a conference, we're talking about students and how they can improve. And the teachers coming up with ideas and maybe issues that the student's having, the parents coming up with ideas and maybe issues that the student is having. And we're all there talking about the student. And the only who's not there is the student. So at a middle school, I really believe that it's important to have the students at those meetings when we're talking about them that we, we should be able to include them in the problem solving process. So I felt like we didn't have to create anything artificial, that those two felt needs were real and we wanted to try to do better. With that said, it's difficult to do new things. So from a parent's perspective, you know, especially the ones who are coming from elementary, they are expecting the teacher to lead the program. And there is some pushback. How does my kid know what they need uh, was a question. And they wanted more information. So I was able to reach out to a couple other districts for things that they did and try to have them here. I even had some teachers come to our school and present at a parent night, teachers who ran the student conferences so they could give a, a window into what it looks like. Uh, I also was able to contact some districts and they were able to share videos with me of what their student-led conference looked like. I think having that video to be able to see what it looks like was really important. And also the testimonial from the teacher was really important. Um, that, that helped with the pushback and also trying to give the teachers a framework. Uh, the summer before we rolled it out, we spent a lot of time creating a framework for the teachers that was all either computer-based or paper-based so that, that there was a template and a roadmap for them to use once they met with the students and once they met with the parents. They could alter it a little bit for their grade level, but I think having that framework to wor work off of was really helpful for them. And then, you know, it's still a little bit scary and not everybody's going to love every initiative. But at the end of the day, I really felt that those two main problems that we had, parents not getting a meeting, 
and students not having a seat at the table, that those two issues were really addressed and, and addressed well. To the point where once we had students leaving our eighth grade, they have options. You know, they, they can go to a private school, they can go to a technical school, they can go to the, the regional public high school. But some of those high schools have interviews in order for them to get in. And students from other schools have never been on an interview. Our students have been doing student-led conferences, talking about their strengths and weaknesses, talking about their goals and their areas that they want to focus on and how they are going to get there. Our students were dramatically in terms of that interview process, and I believe for life, because it, it interviews, everybody knows that who's listening that you're going to have interviews in, in your life and you want to be able to do well. But your first couple of interviews are, are rough. You're, you're sitting there and, and you're having to talk in a positive light about yourself. That's, that's a difficult thing to do. So I think it, it helped for school, but also life. That is fantastic, John. And um, having been a parent uh, in the Byram School District and, and sitting through student-led conferences, um, I found them to be very helpful. And I also found that um, it made my son more accountable uh, for his education, which is important, especially as uh, kids grow up. They have to become more independent and take accountability for their learning. So, uh, you know, I thank you for the implementation of that type of uh, change in the district. To your point, middle school students, I think it's developmentally appropriate that they rebel a little bit, right? That they push back against certain. And so, you know, that accountability process is important, but also letting them know that they have input in the process is important. I agree with you 100%. Excellent. So we are uh, kind of coming near the end. Um, what qualities, John, do you think a school leader needs to have and how do you ensure that your teachers are developing these qualities in your students while also ensuring that they're teaching the standards required to be taught? Because we are preparing kids for jobs that don't exist yet. Yes, and it's it's really difficult. I think that right now, um, being a teacher is a very difficult thing to do. That you know, our teachers have gone through COVID, and now is a time where teachers are being pulled in in a lot of different directions because the students that they have in front of them traditionally would have many different levels. And now, because of COVID and you know virtual learning or hybrid learning, that students are at different places. So I think that one of the qualities that that teachers need to have, and it's difficult to have, is is just to be vulnerable, to let people know that it's it's okay that I don't have all the answers right now. That we're going to continue to work and explore and try to come up with creative solutions for things. But I want teachers to know that it's okay that they don't have all the answers right now, as long as they have the courage to go out and and research some best practices or you know, to meet with other educators to try to come up with new ways of, of doing things. Um, I think that now we're at a time where we have lots of opportunities. We, we have a, a real need in front of us with students at so many different levels. And there are going to be some teachers who come up with some groundbreaking practices that previously probably wouldn't have been considered. So I am excited about the potential for those learning opportunities to surface. I'm very excited about that. I am cognizant of the fact that our teachers are extremely stressed because they want the students to do so well. So I, I think being vulnerable is an amazing quality for teachers to have, but it's difficult because of everything that they've they've been through over the last 18 months. Thank you for that, John. Um, I, I agree with you that vulnerability is important and for teachers to be supported in taking risks and students supported in taking risks and that it's okay to make a mistake. Um, that's how we learn. And I also agree that we will be developing some groundbreaking things in the area of education. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I really appreciate your uh, willingness to share your best practices with us and look forward to a continued partnership uh, in the years to come. 
Happy to be here, Kate. Good luck, and I wish you well. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you Thank so much, John. Really appreciate your time today and uh, everything that you're doing for the students in Byram. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you, John. And this is a good time for us to take a break. You've been listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. We will be right back. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. This evening, once again, uh, our sessions are being led by doctoral uh, candidates here at Centenary University, um, Kate Walsh and Melissa uh, Lewis. So without further ado, I think I'm going to toss it over to Melissa to introduce the next guest and uh, continue the show. Melissa? Thank you very much, Dr. Fredericks. So excited to be here and so excited to, to talk with our next guest, um, Dr. Jennifer McCones. Welcome, Jen. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for uh, having me today. And it's so exciting uh, to uh, interact back with Centenary University, uh, which, as you know, I received my doctorate a degree there. So I'm excited to be here. Hi, everybody. We are so excited to have you with us. Um, so I would like you just to start off, tell us a little bit about your time and your career in education and where you have been. So I am currently a principal here um, at Birchwood Elementary. This is actually my fourth year here as a principal. Very exciting, um, fantastic community, amazing students. Uh, really, it's a great town to work in. And prior to my arrival here, I worked at Great Meadows as a principal at this amazing school called Liberty Elementary, uh, which is actually pretty close to Centenary, right up the road. Um, so my time as an administrator has been between both of these uh, two really wonderful communities. So I've been very lucky, very fortunate. That's great. So I know that during your most recent, your current principalship, you were um, one of the many principals in a short amount of time. So when you came into the school, can you tell us a little bit about the feeling within the community, the feeling amongst the staff? Um, what was the morale that you were feeling at that time? So it's really tough because I could just say overall, not just so much here at Birchwood Elementary, but just in my 20 years in education, you know, administrators come and go and it's becoming, I don't want to say the norm, but in, in certain communities and certain schools, unfortunately, it has been the norm for some. And that's a tough situation to be in. Um, when there's a revolving door of administrators, it's very tough on the community. Um, it's tough on the children, and it's really stressful for teachers. So me as a teacher, having experiencing that, you know, on on the other side, you know, behind the desk in the classroom, I know what it feels like to have the forever changing and the new administrators coming in. And then all of a sudden there's new, you know, new incentives and, you know, different programs and different people and different relationships to build and that constant, you know, change. Um, so here at Birchwood, I know I was one of a few in, in the past couple of years. So I think they were, it was, it's nerve wracking for them. You know, I can kind of feel that, 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 you know, energy where it's like, oh, we have another principal. Here comes another principal. <laughs> so it was really my goal in this community to let the teachers know that I'm there for them. I'm in it for the long haul. Um, I'm vested, you know, invested in the community, invested in our children, and ultimately really invested and our, and our teachers and their success. Absolutely. And, you know, that's definitely something that you feel the moment you walk into your building. Um, you can right away see some of those, those pieces that you put into place. And recently you wrote a book, um, Make Your School Awesome. And uh, can you tell us a little, little about your book and, and what you, your inspiration for Make Your School Awesome was all about? 
So interesting enough, through Centenary University, um, with my dissertation study, um, I did a study on the relationship between principal leadership and teacher morale in a K-12 you know, school setting. So my passion's always been about morale because it doesn't matter if you work in a dentist's office, if you work and you are a bus driver uh, for the local NJ Transit, no matter what you do in your career, you could be an attorney, a, you know, a police officer, you need to be energized. You need to be excited to come to work. You need to feel good because when you feel good, you are going to produce. You know, we look and we look at corporations and we look at so much and how much they've invested in making morale a priority in in the corporate world. And I think because they know that by investing in in your work in your workers, you're ultimately going to have better production. And, and what better, you know, and more important field than there is in education? You know, our job is to provide for students when teachers are, you know, they're productive, they're happy. So that was really the idea was to to generate, you know, ideas and inspirations through creating this book to really kind of give a roadmap to principals and let them know it's okay that we it's important to make morale a priority you know we have all these priorities you know we, we're i know a lot of schools are going through you know cusac now and you know we have top-down initiatives and we have you know new curriculums to you know develop and implement and there's just so much pressure uh, of everything on our shoulders and one thing that we forget as building administrators that we need to make sure our teachers are okay we need to make sure that our teachers are feeling good and that they're giving a thousand percent every day. So this book is really kind of like a roadmap for teachers, you know, to inspire, inspire building administrators um, and really to make them kind of become reflective and understand the importance of building teacher morale and, and really just getting teachers excited to come to work every day. That is fantastic, Jen. Um, I am actually going to order your book and read it. I'm, and I'm excited to see what you have in there. Um, so I know uh, Melissa shared with us um, in your book, you discuss the difference between school culture and school climate. Which would you say in your experience is easier to change? And what do you focus on to make that change? I think that's a great question. So, you know, culture is overall how we work together, our daily operations, how to cultivate, you know, those positive experience. But climate is key because climate is the temperature of our building and how we feel. And I have to say, on a day-to-day -day basis, the climate you know, as a principal, I set the tone every single day. Um, I greet students. I greet staff. I, I strategically position myself at the front of the building. And I do that every morning because I want to get a vibe. I want to know what's coming into the building. You know, did this child have a, a rough morning? Did, did one of my custodians, you know, have a rough morning? You know, by me positioning myself there, I can set the tone and kind of gauge in what challenges some of my staff or some of my students have, and then I can address them. Because it's really important, you know, to deliver that sense of calm in the building and ultimately really to build everybody up and, and, and to have and to greet everybody and let them know that this is a safe, this is a fun, and, and this is a productive place to be. Um, and again, it's really gauging, gauging that climate and, and setting the tone for the day. You know, I think that, that, you know, you hit the nail on the head there that right now, especially it's the climate in the building 
um, with teachers and everything that they've had on their plate um, within the last 18 months, two years, there's just been a lot. And so I feel like this year, more than ever, focusing on climate of the students, the staff is of utmost importance. Absolutely. I look the way that I have dealt with my staff and dealing with, you know, external factors through, you know, the last eight years, never in my lifetime would I ever imagine, you know, that we would be facing a pandemic and, you know, we'd be going to remote, you know, teaching and hybrid teaching, ultimately, um, just the stress. And then coming back to school in September and then almost, I feel like at this point, you know, let's be real. It's almost like we're examining what had happened last year, where the gaps exist in students and how do we fill in those gaps on top of already taking on our traditional September, October, you know, needs for them if it was a normal school year. So you're right. Uh, the climate's a tough one um, this year because of so many external factors and external factors that, again, we would never, if we had this conversation on the radio, um, in 1999, we would say, we'd never be talking about this, you know, <laughs> shutting down for almost, you know, months and months, marking periods at a time, students learning from, you know, a computer screen from their kitchen, you know? So again, there's, there's, there's a lot of stress on these teachers. It is definitely, not the norm by any means. Um, but again, as as building leaders, as principals, um, even as head teachers in the building, you know, we need to take that leadership role and we need to create an environment where teachers feel supported more so now than ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. In your book, you talk about some ways of using faculty meetings to help change your school climate. Can you talk a little bit about some of the activities that maybe you've recently done during a faculty meeting or as we call them here in, in Rockaway Township community learning times? Um, what, what have you done to, to make those faculty meetings change that school climate? So I think it's important to know that how I would run a faculty meeting in previous years um, is a lot different than today. Just going through, first of all, think about your very first faculty meeting you attended 20 years ago. They were so mundane. They were boring. They were overwhelming agendas. Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, after a long, stressful day at work, the last thing um, a teacher wants to do is sit in a conference room. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, we know who they are. Like so every now and then you have a building, not to say mine does, all my teachers are fabulous, but um, sometimes they become a complaining session and they're not, they're not productive environments. Um, they're not happy environments. And sometimes you get stuck sitting next to, I like to call them an energy vampire, you know, some, some coworker that is just going to drain you even more at the tail. Oh, end I of the like day. that energy like vampire, that. an energy vampire. <laughs> so, um, it's so important as these faculty meetings have evolved, you know, administrators have just really started stepping out of the box and changing them up and making them more fun and making them more hands-on, you know, some people doing some icebreakers, other people will roll their eyes at icebreakers, um, um, hands-on fun activities. So understanding that these, the norms in faculty meetings have definitely made a shift for the better in the past couple of years. I think if I was to go in a time machine and my very first principal walked in and, you know, I invited him into the future to see how I run my faculty meetings today, I think we would have to resuscitate him on the floor. <laughs> Is it, what is she doing in there? But um, to go back to your question, we try to make them fun. We try to make them hands-on. Um, and I'll just speak to my most recent experience. Um, it's 
October. It's fun. It's festive. I teach, you know, I am am an administrator in elementary school. My teachers work with K to five. So this is very, um, we're geared towards the holidays and celebrating, you know, calendar events. So this last, this last faculty meeting, I transformed the meeting into an Oktoberfest. And to put a play on words, we had the worst <laughs> faculty meeting ever. And it was Oktoberfest theme. And I had pretzels for everyone. Um, we had, you know, some photo ops and decorations, Bavarian decorations throughout. Now, granted, we still built our professional learning communities. Um, we developed, you know, agendas. There was work to do. But again, we I need to provide those teachers with that with that that break to give them to give them, you know, a little boost of energy and and let them know that I appreciate them. And it's the little give backs and it's it's the little bit that I can do in in a little, you know, 45, 50 minute period at the end of a long Monday um, and just to show them that I'm I'm invested in them and uh, I want them to enjoy the time in the faculty meetings and I want them to have an environment where they can they ha- you know they can they can relax and unwind just for a little bit before we get right back to business and roll up our sleeves and jump back into an you know an extension of their work day. So yeah, so I recently hosted the worst fa- you know faculty meeting ever. We went full we went full German themed on that and uh, it was the first time I ever did that one. I try to mix them up every year. And I just want to jump in, like, and if you are an out-of-the-box, you know, thinker and um, an administrator that likes to do fun things, it's important not to do the same things every year. So if I if I did that every faculty meeting every October, it would kind of become mundane, just like before you did fun, you know, incentives and celebrate your teacher. So you really want to mix it up. And that's really going back to the book. The book just gives a thousand and one ideas each month to theme things differently, um, to do giveaways um, to do motivational things at your meetings as well as, you know, throughout your work day. But again, you don't want to do the same stuff every year. You want the teachers to feel excited to come to work, excited to attend those meetings, you know, and excited, you know, just to be part of, you know, a happy working family. That is fantastic. I like to play on words there, Jen. And I really do like the term energy vampire. I think I'm going to adopt that. I forget where uh, I saw thought- can't take credit for it. I don't know if it was in a book or I saw something or a speaker at one time, but that always stuck with me because you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because when you when you have those environments um, for teachers to communicate, they're wonderful. But we, but as administrators, we need to create the tone even for those meetings. We want them to be inspiring. We want them to be motivating. Remember, our energy is contagious. We want those teachers to feed off our energy as as administrators. We're really like coaches, and we want them to just grow. But when you have those one or two people that kind of set that negative tone, unfortunately, they too can be contagious. So we want to make sure that anytime we have that open, you know, or that CLT or that learning environment, we as administrators, we want to take the lead on it and make sure every minute is productive and enjoyable for our teachers to grow. Which is awesome. Um, I just want to circle back to the uh, conversation on culture and climate and the teachers being under so much stress and the administration too. Um, you know, how do you get your parents on board with uh, fostering a positive uh, culture and climate within your school? I think the most important thing is, okay, so if we go back to even the buy-in, it's all about building relationships. 
if we were to talk about how do we get parents on board? How do I get my teachers on board? How do I get my students on board? The answer is always going to be the same because the most important part of our job as building administrators is to build relationships. So it's taking that time, communicating with those parents, um, and letting them know that we, as, as a community, as a school, especially here at Birchwood, we are 1,000% dedicated in providing our children, you know, with the, with the best learning environment. And I think once those, those the, the families and, and, the, and the parents and guardians at home understand that your staff is all in, you as an administrator, you're all in, and that's all they need because then you build that trust. So with those relationships, you build that trust. And through that trust, you can make and you can enact change. And that change is positive change. Which is fabulous. Um, one other thing, I know that you are in a K-5 to building. Um, and you talk a lot about student voice. And even though they're little people, um, they do have ideas and, and a voice. And how do you give them a voice in your school, the kids? That's a fantastic question. And I think the most and I think the most valuable time for students to have a voice, and we can always say student council, and you know, we have different programs where, where students can come up and take a leadership role. Um, we foster environment throughout the year, especially in a non-COVID year. Of course, with COVID again, there's so many restrictions and missing mixing cohorts and you know, mixing children from grade levels. But in a non-COVID traditional year, allowing those children as they get older to have a voice maybe through um, you know, student council or taking on leadership roles, safety patrol, they then get to work with our younger population. And and I and it's it's constant messaging. Anytime I go into a fifth grade classroom at fourth grade and so on, I'm always explaining to them how proud I am because they are the leaders of my building and they need to make us proud by setting examples. And that's where they get their voice. Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I do want to um, let everyone know that you have great ideas in this book, but you also have great ideas other places. Can you um, share with us where people can find your ideas? Oh, okay. So they're kind of all over everywhere. We are on Instagram at Makerschool Awesome. Um, you can follow us on the web at makerschoolawesome.com. We have some blogs. We do shout outs to teachers. When I see something awesome in a school or I see something on Instagram, I'm constantly uploading it to the website to give them snaps, kind of like applause. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're, we're everywhere. So please follow us and um, join the vibe of making your school awesome. What a perfect way for us to end this segment. And uh, you've been listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. We will be right back. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University here in the studio again with my co-host Fran Gavin and our doctoral students who are curating this program, Kate Walsh and Melissa Lewis. At this point uh, in the show, I'm going to toss it back to Kate uh, to introduce our final guest. Thank you, Tim. Our final guest today is Dr. Kurt Sereznak. Welcome, Dr. Sereznak. We're happy to have you here. Kurt, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us why you became an educator and how you arrived at your current position at a New Jersey public school? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me on. Um, I actually think I got into education in an interesting way. I never thought or, or dreamed about being an educator. I was a criminal justice major. I always wanted to be a police officer and eventually an FBI agent. Uh, unfortunately, I had, or I should say fortunately, uh, I had a couple seizures. They didn't know what caused them, but um, they were concerned that you can't be a law enforcement officer and not carry a gun or have a weapon. 
So I was forced to take a different path. And luckily it worked out for me. I um, went back to some of my high school teachers, coaches, and I was like, great, what, what do I do now? Um, and they kind of got me, they said, you know what, you would be a great teacher and coach. Why don't you get into education? So I got into education by coaching with some of my former high school coaches, which led me into uh, teaching. Uh, after teaching a couple of years, uh, people were kind of saying, you know, you got the talent, you, why don't you go and coach at the collegiate level? Um, so I wrote to every single division one school in the country, uh, wound up coaching college basketball, but I knew education was for me. So from there, I went to, um, became a teacher, became a Dean of discipline, functioned as an assistant to the athletic director, assistant principal, grant coordinator, and now as a principal. That is awesome. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Sarzak, you recently um, finished your uh, doctoral degree at St. Elizabeth University. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what your dissertation focused on and what you learned while doing the research on your dissertation? Yeah, so the dissertation focused on uh, three essential questions. It was uh, what strategies should principals implement to overcome resistance in order to uh, promote and achieve change? Um, the second question kind of focused in on how do principals influence change in teachers' instructional practices, especially with tenured staff members? And then the final question that was reviewed and looked at was, uh, what are the challenges and successes that principals encounter as they initiate, implement, and sustain successful change? So the dissertation opens up, and the first chapter kind of focuses in on the problems with tenure, the history of tenure, especially as it relates uh, to the state of New Jersey. And then from there, uh, chapter two kind of focuses on all the research that's been out there. And then it, it kind of goes into, you know, the methodology, which uh, several principals were interviewed. Uh, there were one-on-one -on -one interviews that were conducted as well as surveys to different administrators across the state of New Jersey. And the dissertation pretty much, the results of the dissertation came out with six major outcomes. Uh, the first one was that in order to implement successful change, you have to promote stakeholder involvement and input. Uh, the second one is to earn trust and develop relationships. Uh, I know you had a couple people on here who discussed that, and that is a major thing when it comes to, to change. The third thing is incorporation of data, that there has to be a data analysis and utilizing that data effectively. The fourth is um, providing ongoing support to teachers, specifically as it relates to professional development. We always talk about differentiation for students, but we also need differentiation for staff as well. Um, so it kind of talks about how to do that and, and how to involve uh, some of these steps. Interestingly, the survey results did not find tenure as a major factor in influencing instructional change. However, the rich data from the interviews suggested it was. So I think when uh, doing research, it's not only important to have surveys, but the interview process and getting specific uh, feedback and the open-ended responses uh, was huge. And, and then finally, implementing change is hard. Um, you know, change automatically brings fear, um, resistance. And I think it's important to understand that when usually successful change happens, there is that component within there. So, you know, principals need to demonstrate grit, persever perseverance, and the dissertation kind of talks about how one can develop those skills. Well, thank you very much. Um, how are you using that research to implement change in your current district? 
So I think in my, that's a great question. I think in my current district, there are a lot of changes going on. Um, we've implemented readers and writers workshop. We've implemented an RTI program, um, new enrichment courses. Um, so this being my third year here, that's a lot of change. So I'll focus in on, on one change that we've made. Um, we got feedback from uh, students that there weren't enough enrichment courses for our middle school students. Um, and they wanted more opportunities. So one of the things that we did was this year, we actually added 15 in-person enrichment courses uh, that students could take. Now, when you think about that, the first thing people think of is extra staff. How do we do that? You know, being in a small district, money's a, fa money's a factor for all districts, but especially in a small school, it's more difficult to say we need another teacher. Um, so we got together with staff and um, essentially I, I pitched this idea out to them. And I said, you know, here's an opportunity. Here's my ideas. Um, how do we make this happen? Right. The surveys are saying this. The kids are saying this. Let's get it done. And we worked collaboratively, uh, you know, to make that happen. Um, you know, and the feedback that we're getting is uh, has been very positive from the entire school community. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about with the the pushback? Did you did you initially get a lot of pushback from staff regarding changes or did did they did you not because of including them in that initial process? Well, I think with any new change, you're always going to get um, some type of pushback. And, you know, I actually discussed that in the dissertation where um, that's normal. And sometimes if you don't get pushback, that's even more of a problem. And, yeah. you know, is it going Absolutely. to be, you know, is this change going to be successful? Um, I always say it's important, get the boots on the ground, right? So if you think about this, who's going to be implementing this change? Well, the majority is not really me. It's going to be the teachers who are teaching the subject areas, who are planning, who are preparing, who are doing the lessons. Um, so I always say with one of the major things about change, you got to get input from boots on the ground. So as, and you have to be open to hearing, you know, criticisms, hearing problems, because a lot of those times, a lot of times I should say, those problems are legit and they're good points. So I think when you're the person facilitating change, it's often common that people are defensive. And I think that it's important not to take that personally. So, you know, here's an example. I had an idea of, you know, making this, I would say, elective period during the end of the day. And as we were dis discussing this, you know, I, I can sit here and, and, and discuss how we, and the process and how we rolled it out for the next couple hours. But uh, to be brief, you know, one of the staff members said, you know, I, I feel like this is going to be an issue. Why don't we do it first period? Then a conversation entailed, well, it could increase or I should say decrease the amount of students who are tardy if we set this up right. So uh, a lot of the decisions that were made regarding this was from the staff, or I should say the boots on the ground. And I think that's where I got that, you know, the buy-in and staff making decisions on what it looks like. Can you talk about some of the courses that have been added? Yes. Yeah, so we actually had uh, Tech Talk which is students analyzing technology, speaking about recent technology. Um, that class involved where students actually had some input as well. 
Um, so the other day when I was walking through the building, some of the students wanted to look at um, what was inside of a Chromebook, and some were interested in possibly being technicians. So they were opening up computers. We had um, analyzing music. We had knitting. A lot of students were interested in jewelry making. So we have an elective class regarding jewelry making, woodworking. Um, some people were interested in the stock market. And if you look at, yes, we touch upon some of that in our curriculum, but it's not really in depth. So the stock market. One of the great things about this was that teachers also had a say in what they taught. So they got to put in a course proposal and we worked it out where, you know, they might not be certified in a certain area. So for instance, we have our language arts, middle school language arts teacher who is involved in music and he plays in a band. So why not use his expertise as well? So we kind of structured it where it's aligned um, and it adheres to, you know, state and federal laws, but we're also able to push this as well. Um, you know, we have uh, one of our top courses is forensics that has involved so much that now the teacher and several staff are working together to plan an advanced forensics class so those are just some examples of now the new course offerings that um, NetCong is offering and how do the students and the staff like the courses I think they love them a lot of the feedback has been positive but when we talk about you know change and implementing something new it's important to get feedback you know, so we are distributing surveys. We're giving them out to the entire school community. We also want parent involvement. Um, this is year one, although it, it it's very successful. You know, I always say no program, no school is perfect, but you should always strive to be. So, you know, the staff feedback, I think we're going to look at that, really break down the data, synthesize it, and, and figure out our next steps and how to move forward and even more. We're also getting student input as to additional courses that they may want. Can I just ask real quick, these enrichment programs, this sounds phenomenal. Um, are they are they running as a as a trimester or as a marking period and then they're switching up or are these year long courses? No. So they're actually switching up. That's a great question. Our middle school is in three trimesters. So we have a trimester schedule. So each elective is one trimester. So I actually we actually just sent out a an enrollment form for students uh, for trimesters two and three. So they actually get to sign up for one of the 15 classes. Um, and, and again, I think it's important to always get student feedback. So one of the things that we're doing is what, what courses do you want? Um, we're also getting feedback um, so we can provide it to the teachers. What was great about the courses? What was not? And, um, you know, what can we do better? So, so yeah, they, at least the students, they're not stuck with one course, even though they choose it and rank it. Uh, our eighth graders get top priority. But um, you know, it's at least I think every student got at least their top two uh, choices when they enrolled. So at least they get to partake in three different classes during the course of the year. Which is wonderful. Um, and this is just one of the changes that has been implemented that has really kind of taken off the ground and, and everybody's happy with it. Um, so prior to the pandemic, you know, you were a new principal in Nekong and um, we, you and I and our curriculum coordinator were talking about um, changing up the English language arts program at the elementary school and moving more towards the reader's workshop model. And there was some pushback, especially after the pandemic happened and we were on virtual learning. And there was some pushback from the staff about implementing this in the fall of 2020. Mm -hmm. How did you manage that and ultimately 
lead the building um, in the implementation of the reader's workshop model and eventually get staff on board with the model that we are currently using. Good question. I think that um, one of the things that about implementing change is it, it, yes, there are some parts that have to be, uh, I want to say top down, but the really core work is kind of selling it and, and getting that buy-in. Uh, one of the first things that we did was uh, students were complaining that, you know, with a traditional reading program and not a, um, that stories were boring. They weren't interested. They didn't want to do work. They didn't want to read. And especially for younger kids, it, it's kind of sad when you think about it. So it was kind of selling like, hey, this needs to happen. You know, if we want to, and it goes beyond um, improving test scores, but if you want children to develop a love for reading, um, and, and we had a lot of data supporting that. Um, and we also got some input from staff and really showed that data to say, hey, there needs to be a change. This is the rationale behind it. Now, what can we do? Um, it's also important that um, we had teachers observe, go to other schools and observe and, and ask for feedback. Hey, take a look at it. Be open to this. Um, and once we did that, some teachers came back and said, hey, you know what? This is really a great program for, for our kids. I loved it. You know, and obviously you may have some students, you know, teachers that are, again, change brings fear. They're going to be apprehensive about implementing something. So now it's using your key players, selling it. Hey, if you really think that this is going to be good, I need you to help me sell this. How can we sell this? Um, so there was a lot, of, I want to say, behind the scenes work to make that happen. Um, but also professional development. Um, you know, one of the things that is in my dissertation says you need to be ongoing support, specifically PD. So we didn't want to just throw out this and say, okay, you know, I, I've seen some schools where they implement a new program and there's orientation on day one and they got to roll it out the next day when school starts. We did it a year in advance. And we said, this is our goals. This is our vision. Work with us. Um, you know, we had 10 PD sessions before we even implemented it. You know, I, that whole process, I always say I am a big fan of the process. Um, and again, I, I could speak about a process and how you should do that process for the next 10 hours, but it, it's really, um, you know, the dissertation kind of goes into that in a little bit more detail on how that process should be enacted. But, you know, like I said, I am a big fan of the process and those important things and behind the scene work is important. And certainly leading that change during a pandemic was certainly difficult. Um, the professional development took place virtually, um, but you were able to get it done as an administrative team. We were able to get it done. And uh, it's been a positive uh, change in the district for sure. What qualities need to be developed in students uh, at this point uh, by teachers to prepare them for jobs that do not yet exist? And how should teachers be developing these qualities uh, while still teaching the standards that need to be taught? So I think that it involves a lot of embedding. Um, you know, you could still teach standards while embedding other skills. You know, as an example, I think if you talk about what a teacher should do or what an administrator, some of their skills, um, you know, I, I talked about building relationships and collaboration and uh, all of that can be embedded while still covering, you know, while still covering the standards. I think it's important to have high expectations and resiliency. You know, I, I talked about one of the outcomes of the dissertation was the demonstrating grit and perseverance. Um, so that can be embedded within the standards and, and what a teacher is covering um, to, you know, like you said, there are jobs that, you know, I've read an article that kind of relates to what you said. 
There's jobs that have, aren't existing yet. And 25%, uh, they said 25% of jobs in 2025 are not yet here. Um, so again, it's not just about the standards, but it's developing those skills to make sure that students are ready and prepared for the jobs that are still not or have not been in existence yet. So with that, uh, it's a great time for us to wrap up uh, this edition of Leadership Matters on WNTI.org. Thank you to Jen, uh, Kurt, and John, and our doctoral students, Kate and Melissa. Uh, good evening, everyone. We will see you next week.